0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. It took one referendum, four long years, and countless hours of tense negotiations for Britain to leave the European Union. Our diplomatic editor surveys the scene, laying out how the country can make the most of its history and influence on the global stage. And in Britain later, it's Burns Night, celebrating the birth of Robert Burns, Scotland's national bard. A great deal of haggis will be eaten because he just loved the stuff. But there's some not very well-known history behind it that you'd be wise not to tell the Scots. First up though, On Saturday, tens of thousands of Russians took to the streets in more than a hundred towns and cities across the country in support of jailed Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny.
1: Protesters there chanted,
2: Putin is a thief, as well as freedom to Navalny.
0: Chilling videos emerged of police beating and kicking demonstrators, but the response was not one of out-and-out brutality. More than 3,000 arrests were made and even Mr. Navalny's wife was briefly detained. The demonstrations were sparked by Mr. Navalny's arrest on spurious charges just as soon as he returned from Germany last week. But protesters were also fired up by a two-hour video, narrated by Mr. Navalny and released a day later. It depicts a lavish secret palace on the Black Sea, allegedly built for President Vladimir Putin and funded with dodgy money allegations the Kremlin dismissed as just rumour. Mr. Putin remains in a tough spot, with disquiet spreading and his loudest critic making just as much trouble while in jail as he did out of it.
3: This was not my first protest in Moscow. I've seen quite a few in the past few years.
0: Arkady Ostrovsky is our Russia editor.
3: In Moscow, I would say the atmosphere was um, one of caution, pretty much on both sides. The fact that people have braved the streets, braved the police cordons, came out despite enormous intimidation campaign uh, that was waged by the Kremlin in the preceding days is in itself extraordinary. Russia is a much more repressive state today than it was even a few years ago. The people who were out in the street were certainly not radicals. As ever in Moscow protests, there were scary moments, police charging. But on the whole, the police behaved with some restraint, and its actions were nowhere on the level of violence and brutality, which we saw a few months ago in neighboring Belarus. There was no special measures, there was no tear gas, there were no rubber bullets. So it was definitely tense,
0: but I didn't see many of the excesses. And when you you spoke to protesters, what were they saying? Why were they out? The
3: protesters came from absolutely different social strata and had different possibly political beliefs. What brought them out onto the street uh, were few things. There was a sense of injustice over the arrest of Alexei Navalny, who was arrested at passport control on arrival at Sheremetyevo Airport and is now uh, facing three and a half years in jail for breaking parole rules on a previous suspended sentence. And the reason he broke those parole rules and didn't come to report to the police was he was just happened to be recovering from Novichok nerve agent poisoning in Germany. So people obviously saw that as an injustice. The other big catalyst for the protest was the release of Alexei Navalny's extraordinary two-hour-long documentary film uh, about allegedly Putin's secret palace on the Black Sea coast, which was built to him by his cronies at a cost of $1.3 billion. It's kind of a, your absolutely archetypal James Bond villain's pad with all the trimmings and the golden toilet brushes. That made a big impact. It clocked over 80 million views on, on YouTube. And underlying all that was just general sense of tiredness of Putin's regime, tiredness of corruption, lack of economic growth. It was a very broad protest, and that's what made it so interesting. You know, a lot of people came out for the first time.
0: And so do you think that that broad dissent across demographics um, and and a lot of first-time protesters will will make any difference to, to what the Kremlin actually does?
3: It's not going to make any difference in the short term. The Kremlin has already said it's not going to pay attention. Uh, Dmitry Peskov, Putin's spokesman, said, uh, well, we think it was a very small protest. Many more people vote for uh, Vladimir Putin. That was ironic, given that uh, Alexei Navalny was barred from the election in which people vote for uh, Vladimir Putin. The reason the numbers were kept down was because of enormous intimidation campaigns. Parents of schoolchildren were told to keep their kids at home. Students were threatened with expulsion. Employers told their employees they risked dismissal if they would join the protests, etc., etc. The Kremlin is not going to release Alexei Navalny overnight. But as Navalny himself uh, and his associates have said, this is not an immediate process. This is a long haul to recoin the famous phrase by Mikhail Gorbachev in the late 80s, the process has started.
0: So do you think that the detention of, of Mr. Navalny and, and the release of this video and, and all of those views have really changed things? Is this a, a turning point?
3: They do. And this change affects Vladimir Putin's legitimacy, which has already been um, waning. And we've seen that in, in the rating figures. But this film and Alexei Navalny's return to Russia is a massive blow to Putin's legitimacy and to the attitudes uh, and the perceptions uh, of Putin in, in the broad Russian public. Um, as one commentator said to me, you know, two years ago, uh, people had to explain why they opposed Putin. Uh, today, they have to justify why they support him.
0: And how has the international community responded to, to this protest mood and these protests?
3: I think so far, Western leaders have been watching very carefully what's happening in Russia. Uh, there has been rhetorical outrage, at least, both from Angela Merkel, uh, who sees this rightly as a slap in her face because Navalny was in Germany under her protection. There's also been marketed different reaction from uh, Washington, I think we will see a very different response from Biden's administration compared to Trump's uh, acquiescence to uh, Putin's actions. There has been called for toughening sanctions, including from Poland. The EU member states uh, foreign ministers are going to discuss next steps. But I think there is also a worry amongst Western countries and particularly among Russian neighbors and countries like the Baltic states and Poland that events in Russia will have repercussions outside Russian borders. And these are not unfounded fears, because in 2014, two years after big protests swept Russia, Petersburg and other big cities, the Kremlin uh, annexed Crimea and started the war in Ukraine uh, in order to uh, change the narrative and dominate political agenda. So I think a lot of Russian neighbors are worried that repression at home and the protests against the Kremlin will
0: lead to aggression abroad. Arkady, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash offer. The link is in the show notes.
2: We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.
0: For centuries, Britain has punched above its weight in international affairs, first as an imperial power and later as a key NATO member and valued political go-between. But now that the country has stepped outside the European Union, it must reframe its policies and its positions in order to find its place.
4: For decades in the post-war years, Britain has tried to find a role by being a bridge between Europe and America within the European Union.
0: Daniel Franklin is our diplomatic editor.
4: And now that it's outside the European Union, it's really got to rethink its role. How does it make its presence felt in the world and what should it be doing? What's its mission?
0: And how will being outside the EU affect that in a direct way?
4: Well, if you go back to the 1960s, it was said that Britain had lost an empire, but not yet found a role. And the European Union kind of provided an answer whereby Britain could have an influence within the larger grouping of what became the European Union. And within the European Union, it could have an outside say because of its especially close relationship with the United States historically and in intelligence and other areas. Now that it's without that bridging role, it really needs to find something new as an independent Country still with a lot of clout in the world in various ways.
0: And, and given the opportunity to to rediscover or rewrite its role, I mean, what, what kind of options are on the table, do you think?
4: I think that there is an idea of Britain being, first of all, a nimbler player than it could sometimes be within the European Union. So it can be quick, for example, as it has been, to impose sanctions in response to the situation in Belarus. It, it can move more swiftly, even with vaccine Approvals than something that happens at the pan-European scale,
0: and, and what about Britain themselves? Uh, something like half of which wanted out of the EU, wanted to be in this situation. What what do they want to represent in in this this new vista?
4: I think that British views on foreign policy are very much coloured, like everything else in Britain these days, by the the divisions over Brexit. And some people would say that it should stop pretending to be a, a really major power; should be more modest, a kind of bigger Denmark, if you like. And quite a few people tell opinion pollers that this is exactly what Britain should do, that the country should lower its ambitions, stop pretending to be a major power and pay more attention to matters at home. But there is also, I think, a strong sense of the global Britain idea, which is what uh, many of the Brexit campaigners envisaged, of a Britain that is open, a Britain that continues to have a kind of buccaneering big influence in the world.
0: But aren't those two views intention the desire to be a more modest, more domestically focused nation, and this play to, to rekindle the status as a great power?
4: They are absolutely intentioned, and there is a constant difficulty of matching resources to ambitions as well. There's a, a sense that Britain could overreach if it tries to do too much. It needs to specialize, it needs to avoid overreaching. And concentrate on areas where it can really make a difference. And those aren't insignificant. It still has the seat at many of the most important forums in the world. It's a member of the Permanent Five in the UN Security Council. It's a G7, G20 member. In fact, this year, Britain chairs the G7. And it also has a big role in hosting the COP26 climate change process and the big summit that is going to be happening in the autumn in Glasgow.
0: And so there are clearly a number of opportunities on the world stage this year. But but what about policy moves? Has the government put any big post-Brexit changes in motion yet?
4: Well, there are three big things really that have uh, already been set. One is that the government has merged the Foreign Office, the traditional area of diplomacy, and uh, the Department for International Development to make sure that diplomacy and aid are pushing in the same way in a more strategic way, I think. So that's one thing. Secondly, there's a big increase in defence spending that has been agreed upon. So a a cyber force, more naval power and more air power. And on the other hand, it has decided to cut back on this commitment to spending 0.7% of GDP on development. So that's going down to 0.5%. Those are major decisions for Britain's posture in the world that what's missing now is this sense of, well, what does it all add up to? What are all these resources trying to achieve?
0: And how do you think all that and the new approach will will affect the relationship that Britain now has with Europe?
4: Well, if you look back historically, Britain has always been drawn back into matters of European politics and European geopolitics and its immediate neighbourhood. There are the countries that share British values of democracy and working together. So it has deep and lasting interests in working closely with Europe. The difficulty is how it does so, having been through this painful divorce from the European Union. Can it do this in a way that doesn't exclude Britain from crucial areas, for example, of of defence collaboration on investment in new weapon systems? So, I think that is the trickiness, that there is still this inhibition about how Britain deals with what has historically been its very closest group of countries, now allies, but always interests. And will it do so in a way that maximizes Britain's influence in future as it also casts its eyes increasingly beyond to a global role?
0: And looking across the Atlantic, how do you see all of this affecting the the special relationship with America, in particular given the incoming Biden administration?
4: Well, that, of course, is changing under President Biden. And it's been interesting to see some rather rapid distancing from the Trump administration, which the Johnson government had been uncomfortably cozy to. But, you know, there are very strong connections in intelligence, in defense through NATO with the United States, and it will be on the whole welcome that there is now a Biden administration that is in favor of allies, that very much emphasizes working with allies And the only, I suppose, trickiness from a British point of view is there'll be a little bit of competition about whether, particularly in economic matters, the Biden administration looks first to the European Union, first to Germany and France, rather than first to Britain.
0: Daniel, thank you very much for your
4: time. Thank you, Jason.
0: Tonight, Britons will be marking Burns Night, celebrating the birthday of the revered Scottish poet, Robert Burns. The key part of the annual celebration includes presenting a haggis to waiting guests, to the sound of bagpipes. Then, a recitation of Burns's ode to this great chieftain of the pudding race. Haggis is a point of national pride in Scotland, but behind this treat made of offal lies an awful truth.
1: So haggis is a blend of mutton lungs, oats and spices, and it's sort of poured into a sheep's stomach and boiled. And it's considered to be Scotland's national dish.
0: Emma Irving writes for 1843, The Economist's sister magazine.
1: In fact, most people think it's kind of as Scottish as kilts or deep fried Mars bars. But haggis actually has an unusual history and was originally an English dish.
0: Say it isn't so. This is going to really upset some Scottish friends of mine. I mean, uh, how, how do you, why do you assert this?
1: So, haggis is mentioned in English literary sources as early as the 13th century, and it made its full debut as haggis in a recipe that was Middle English, and that was over 350 years before Burns wrote his famous address to a haggis. And there's no mention of haggis in an identifiably Scottish text until around 1513, which was in a verse by William Dunbar, who was a court poet for King James IV.
0: So if, in fact, the English did invent it, how has it become to be so incredibly Scottish?
1: Well, for the best part of four centuries, it was beloved by the English, but it did then fall out of favor. Why? Well, because it began to be seen as Scottish. Um, The reason for that is that in 1707, you have the Act of Union. That's when Scotland and England became one kingdom. But in the following century, many Scots became destitute due to the highland clearances, which were the forced eviction of inhabitants of the highlands and western islands. And they were also unable to keep up with modern farming techniques. And haggis, because it was so cheap and also nutritious, became very popular north of the border. So in England, that meant it became quite unpopular. It began to lose its reputation as a delicious treat and instead be seen as a sort of miserly meal for Scots. And then the ploughman poet Robert Burns came along. He turned this sort of slight into a badge of honour. And food historian Catherine Brown told me that it was Burns's poem addressed to a haggis that cemented it as Scottish. He saw the poetry in the haggis. And because he was such a brilliant man, he got the Scottish words that described it. He calls it the honest Sonsie face. And Sonsie was charming and quite a nice word, Sonsie. (laughs) And it's part of the Scottish culture. It's a, a celebration of the haggis.
0: And in the intervening centuries now, it's become wildly, wildly popular in Scotland.
1: Exactly. So, haggis is now served across Scotland in everything from sort of, you know, local chippies to sophisticated dining rooms. It comes in lots of innovative guises. Haggis pakoras are a thing. And James McSween, who's the managing director of McSween's, which is a, a haggis company that's been running for three generations.
3: Nothing gives me greater pleasure than talking
2: about haggis.
1: He didn't seem too fussed about the origin story of the dish, but does still note it was Scotland that made it great. And there's and there's nothing like a haggis. If you go to a
3: formal burn supper or a Scottish evening,
1: you know, there's a man
3: that will stand and recite a poem and then stab it. And prior to that, the, the bagpipe player has, you know, got everybody off their feet and he weaves his way
2: through the audience. For a haggis, it's, it's incredible. You know, they don't ode to a turkey at Thanksgiving in America
1: although you still can't eat it in America due to a 50-year ban on importing sheep lungs.
0: And so tonight, for Burns Night, will you yourself be having haggis?
1: Of course. So I'll probably be having traditional haggis, neeps and tatties, um, which is how my Scottish family always eat it. Neeps are turnips and tatties are potatoes. And I'll probably be having a couple of drams of whiskey as well.
0: In which case, I guess I should say slanja. Slanja well. Emma, thanks very much for joining us.
2: We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.